Greetings, podcast listener. Bill Mike here. This is part two of our episode on the American chestnut. If you haven't listened to part one yet, we recommend checking that out first. In it, Steve and I introduced everyone to Eric Danielson, stewardship coordinator with the Western New York Land Conservancy. Eric took us on a hike through the Allegheny Wildlands, a property that the Conservancy is raising funds to purchase as a key piece in their ambitious Western New York Wildway project. Also in part one, we discussed the history of the American chestnut and the blight that decimated the species. In this part, we're going to delve into some of the myths surrounding the American chestnut, but also into the efforts to restore that species to our eastern forests. And, spoiler alert, for once, there's good news to share about our target species. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the second part of our Walk with Eric. (laughs) (laughs) Now we should point out, though, I, I thought this was interesting. In Matt's episode, they talked about how the American chestnut is not an endangered species or a threatened species. Huh? Depends on what list you're looking at. But they're still around. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so can you talk about, you can still find American chestnuts on the landscape, but... But the American chestnuts that you find are typically small trees that are in the process of growing, doing some photosynthesizing as a small tree, and then dying as the blight kicks in and uh, from those damn oak trees (laughs) and then they re-sprout again after that main stem dies Um, and it's important to so another one of these myths of sorts about the chestnuts that I always really liked and was really attached to as a sort of romantic idea Hmm. was that the chestnut sprouts that you find in the forest those are the sprouts coming off the root systems of the ancient trees that died And so, you know, you might be looking at this small tree, but it's really attached to the root system of like a three, four, five hundred year old chestnut tree. That's bullshit. It turns out (laughs) that's not really generally how it works. Now, you'd be forgiven for thinking that because it's close cousin beech. A tree of any age of American beech, when it's stressed, maybe dying, will send up sprouts from the root system. And those root sprouts might then take over and become, you know, the next mature tree as that stem dies back. And so you can have beech that are part of clonal organisms, root systems that have been sending up trunks that live and then die for a very long period of time, a much more extended uh, period of time than the individual tree stems. (laughs) But it turns out that when chestnut sprouts, it does so from dormant buds on the root collar. So that's just the root collar that's right around the base of the tree, right at the base of the tree where the roots meet the ground. Right. Um, So when an American chestnut gets old, over about a century, it turns out, based on one of the papers I was looking at, they tend to lose the ability to re-sprout from the root collar because those dormant buds, I don't know if they get rid of them like vestigial limbs or something, but they generally don't sprout successfully if they're over about a century old. This particular paper that I was looking at, um, I think it was in 1995 it was published, and so I'm not sure if it's, you know, like 100% the whole story, but what they found was that the distribution of old chestnut stumps and persisting chestnut trees in the forest were very different. Most of the persisting chestnut trees were in a section of forest that was a bit younger, a little more disturbed, and looked like basically they had been trees that were saplings at the time the blight came through. Now because they were saplings they were a tiny bit less susceptible to the blight but since they were young they still had those dormant buds on the root collar. So when they died back 
they were able to re-sprout. And so it turns out that, at least based on this paper, probably most of the persisting chestnut trees that we find uh, that are in that kind of cycle of dying back and then re-sprouting are not the trees that were ancient big trees mm. when the blight <laughs> came through. They were youngsters. They were youngsters. Yeah. But a caveat on that. You could certainly have a situation that would give rise to that thought because you could have a chestnut tree that was big and impressive and died and sprouted because they get really big really fast. Yeah. So hmm. you could have a tree that, you know, is four feet wide and 120 feet tall. It's maybe 60 to 80 years old. Sure. So that could die back and then re-sprout, and then you would think that some ancient tree was dying and re-sprouting, <laughs> but not necessarily the case. Yeah. If the audience is like me, we're talking about sprouting and uh, dying a back. bunch of asexual reproduction, essentially, in a way. What about sexual reproduction for the American chestnut? Are, are the seeds viable? Like, there's, what's going on with that? There's male and female trees, right? Right. They yeah. are dioecious, which means that on separate plants you'll have male versus female flowers. And when you have a number of these persisting chestnuts growing close together that get to grow long enough and large enough to flower, sometimes they do, and if they're close enough together, they're wind-pollinated generally, they can cross-pollinate and produce viable seeds. But most of the time, they're relatively isolated and they don't. Yeah. So Got it. Very occasionally, I've been in situations where I'm finding burrs on the ground that do have viable seeds or at least pollinated seeds and you can tell that because when you open up the burr which you know that's the dead big bee por porcupine i was talking about the other day right. <laughs> it's an interesting way to talk about <laughs> yeah. it i think i think sandy might have said that as first a little but... spiky ball um just dead a baby little porcupine. more neutral All right. um, but if you are willing to poke your fingers a bit and open up this spiky ball um, it generally splits into four lobes and inside are three little nuts now, most of the time, these days, when you do that, the little nuts you find inside, they're kind of small and shriveled. Yeah. But once in a while, you'll get them where the nuts are kind of, they look like they've been inflated properly. Um, <laughs> and uh, one of the things that you can do when you're doing that, because there are American chestnut, Chinese chestnut hybrids out there in the wild that have been planted out and things like that. This is a good opportunity when you have the nuts to check to see whether it's a pure American chestnut or a hybrid, <laughs> um, the pure American chestnut, the whole nut from top to bottom will be kind of hairy. It has these soft hairs that kind of lie down flat on the surface of the nut. Um, whereas the Chinese chestnut and presumably the hybrids to an intermediate degree, um, part of the nut is hairless. <laughs> yeah. So Interesting. So I, I guess you also answered another one of my questions is that when you were saying that there was like you know that when it would when they would all be in flower it was like snow on the hills and all that i was wondering that almost made it sound like it was very showy white flowers but they are kind of showy. and they are showy they and they're hmm. and th i was that's what made me wonder are these uh pollinated by you know a pollinator or is it a wind pollinated species but you, you just answered it so wind pollinated interesting and just to build off what you were just saying eric about um the process of dying back resprouting flowering mm -hmm. um so what I came across is that most of the sprouts, they get the blight somewhere between the ages of 7 and 14, die back, re-sprout. So it's estimated that there's still 435 million trees, chestnuts, in our eastern forests. Hmm. There were 4 billion. 
Most of those do not reach flowering stage. Some estimates place it at around 2 million that do, so about 0.5% of the population reach the age where they can flower. Mm -hmm. And those are the ones, if they're near a male and female tree or near each other, you're going to get, <laughs> hopefully, viable nuts. Right, I mean, but then when you think of plants and viable seed, it's usually uh, just a percentage anyway, and usually a small percentage anyway. So, right. yeah. yeah. Is there projections on how long this is going to last? How long are chestnuts going to be able to play this game? Well, because we're going to get into and <laughs> the efforts to restore them. Okay. Um, I will say that if it weren't the case that we had any viable efforts to restore them, in theory, uh, we don't know of a biological limitation on the span of time in which a chestnut, um, you know, that only reaches kind of this size that we're looking at here, which is about, you know, six inches wide and 45 feet tall, um, as long as it has those buds and when those buds re-sprout, they can get enough light. We don't know of a like biological limitation on how many times it can keep on doing that. Okay. Um, so who knows? Like they could just keep on uh, trucking as a vegetative species for <laughs> a very extended period of time. There is some suggestion that when they exist in forests that then go through succession into a more uh, kind of deeper shade climax forest with like a hemlock, beech, maple canopy, that may eventually lead to them being shaded out. But I know more recent work um, than the paper that I got that from has shown that the understory sprouts and seedlings are actually quite shade tolerant. And so part of their ecology is for seedlings to hang out in the understory for at least several years and then kind of shoot up. Wait for a disturbance. <laughs> right. Yeah. Here's the really interesting part to me is like metabolically, the seedlings act like a shade tolerant species, you know, like maple or beech. And then when they're in that rapid growth phase responding to disturbance, they're metabolically more like your super fast growing pioneer or light requiring species, like, an aspen. like tulip tree okay. um, even. Yeah. And then when they're mature in the canopy, I'm not sure how they measured this since we don't really have many, but <laughs> supposedly once they're mature in the canopy, they act more like a shade tolerant species again. They just hmm. assume they act like a redwood, right? Right. <laughs> well, I mean, when we get to the tallest one here, I'd love to talk about, you know, the size that chestnuts do and did grow to, and we'll come back to that shade tolerance in that regard. All right. Want to walk for a little bit? Yeah, let's sure. walk for a little bit. So while we walk, I just want to step back to where we were talking about in 1905, once they identified the blight and gave it a name, there were efforts to fight back. Um, one of the things that they tried to do initially is they thought, well, we can just plant Chinese chestnuts instead. But the Chinese chestnut is definitely not functionally equivalent to an American chestnut. Chinese right. chestnuts are bred for nut, uh, nut production. Mm -hmm. They usually don't get as tall as American chestnuts. They're much more branchy than American chestnut? Yeah. Well, and my understanding is even without breeding, like their natural form is, is more of like an open, open woodland tree. Right. So they're not going to be able to reach up into the canopy and be part of a mature forest. Yeah, it just wouldn't fill the same niche that uh, American chestnut would. Exactly. They also tried uh, lots of different fungicides. And even in the 1950s, there were some efforts to hit chestnuts, the actual nuts, with radioactivity, because hmm. at that time they were hitting everything with radioactivity. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So they called them irradiated chestnuts, and they were hoping that by hitting them with the radiation, they could create mutation. And right. they would just toss these irradiated chestnuts into the landscape, hoping that some of them might have resistance to the blight. Mm -hmm. But not very efficient. <laughs> <laughs> but none of that obviously helped. So from what I could find, by the time we got into the 40s and the 50s, people had kind of given up on fighting the blight. And it wasn't until the 70s and into the 80s that people tried to use breeding to breed in resistance. And we'll talk about that more. But right now, I just want to describe for the audience that Eric is leading us uphill. You can hear us breathing heavy. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we got some striped maple on the, the ground coming up. Oh, I love when we come across the striped maples. So just walking up to this, like if I was walking by this, I might just say in my head, oh, that looks like a beach maybe. But getting up closer, the, the bark does look a little bit different. Yeah. yeah. And you look up, you can see those chestnut leaves. Well, and just to describe a little more, um, you know, the tree we're looking at, it's about, you know, seven, maybe eight inches in diameter. You need a Biltmore stick. <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, I come equipped with lasers. Um, so, you know, I mentioned that I measure trees and I'm part of this organization that, uh, you know, does high accuracy tree measurements. And so I do employ that somewhat casually when I encounter something cool, like a kind of tall chestnut. And I think I measured this one to a little over 65 feet tall. <laughs> but, you know, you mentioned it looks kind of like a beach from a distance, and that's true. Looking at this trunk, even though it's a relatively large chestnut sprout, the bark is very smooth. Mm -hmm. And that's a strong indicator that this has grown very, very quickly. Bark texture on trees obviously changes as the trees age. And oftentimes when trees are growing very, very quickly, they'll have relatively smooth bark because there just hasn't been time for that bark to roughen up and develop its kind of more distinctive texture. You know, beech stays smooth like that, but chestnut starts to develop these long vertical fissures that sort of, in kind of a more elongate and graceful way than ash, um, they kind of weave together. It's a really distinctive pattern if you look at the old photos of it. Though a lot of the historic photos you see of the really big old chestnuts, they've gone through, um, you know, an even further texture transition as they got very old, where that starts to smooth back down again. But this is the tallest American chestnut on the property. Like I mentioned, it's about 65 feet tall. And since we're here, I want to return to that uh, redwood of the east subject and tree dimensions because you know much like there's hyperbole in the idea that you know a squirrel could have run across the tops of chestnuts from the coast to the Mississippi uh, there's been a bit of hyperbole that's developed surrounding the size of the American chestnuts uh, undisputably in the pre-settlement forests they were among the largest deciduous trees we do have reliable records and even good photographs of trees that got as large as 17 feet in diameter. Whoa. Wow. There are larger measurements attested. There are mostly much smaller test measurements attested when you really look at, you know, older inventories and things like that. Um, but we have to be a bit careful with old numbers. We even have to be a bit careful with modern numbers um, because <laughs> There are certain standardized ways of measuring things, and then there are all the other ways you can measure things. 
you can look at a picture of this tree that was 17 feet in diameter. There are a number of historical photos of it. And, you know, that does look like a reasonable account of its measurement at what we call DBH, diameter at breast height. And uh, breast height is standardized <laughs> at four and a half feet for whatever reason. Was that the standard back then? Not necessarily. Okay. Some were using that standard, People but were very back frequently, um, you know, if you were to look at that tree, uh, it flares out quite a bit at the base. And I'm going to come back to that flaring out, but if you were to look at that tree and measure it at different points, if you were to measure it, say, at 10 feet up, it might only be about, uh, you know, 11 or 12 feet in diameter. And if you were to measure it at the base, it might be a good 20, 25 feet in diameter. Hmm. And uh, those are big differences just within the span of from ground up to 10 feet. So that's one of the difficulties in interpreting old measurement numbers. The other difficulty is that they didn't really have very good ways of measuring height at all, period. Um, a Biltmore stick, which is a thing you mentioned, is something you can use to measure height, but you do that in a kind of very vague and imprecise <laughs> way. <laughs> And uh, even today, a lot of the modern uh, like forestry laser equipment uses kind of the same geometry that a Biltmore stick is based on in their tree height measurement mode in what is usually, you know, in the user manual as a tree height measurement mode. Um, and what those are really good for, both the Biltmore stick and those modes, is measuring the height of the marketable portion of the log in the trunk and doing so efficiently in a forest setting because to get a really accurate height of a whole tree, um, you have to have a direct shot to the base and a direct shot to the top twig. It's hard to do in a forest. That's hard <laughs> to do in a forest. And if you're a forester and you've got to go through and you know tally the marketable log lengths in you know, 100, 500 trees in a forest on a given day, you don't want to be messing around with that. And it generally isn't really going to affect your tally totals if a little bit of geometric error sways a given tree five percent in a given direction in accuracy but when you try to apply those methods as people often do to measuring the full height of a tree where the geometry doesn't quite work out anymore because typically the very top point is not directly over the very base point um, and that introduces what we call baseline error. You can end up with things like a nice broad crowned, 90 foot tall cottonwood growing in a, a park somewhere, getting measured by your, uh, you know, DEC forester to 120, 130 feet tall. Oh, jeez. Um, <laughs> and that's not because they are... Fudging? Yeah, it's not because they're fudging. They're just applying the, the right method to the wrong situation. So when it comes to tree height, the description that you read, they said um, they could be up to 100 feet tall. And I love how everything I read that sort of tries to describe how tall a tree is, yeah. says that that tree might be even 100 feet tall. Um, <laughs> you know, similarly for over in Allegheny, I saw a nice blog article about the old growth white pines over in the Allegheny State Park, and uh, they're described as being as much as 100 feet tall. That's not that tall. When you go into, uh, you know, a forest that's, you know, 60 to 90 years old, second growth forest in western New York, just kind of a bog standard forest, the tallest trees in there are generally between 95 and 105 feet tall across all species. Um, 100 feet tall is not actually a tall height for a tree. 
It's just a hundred is a number that we all learn as <laughs> right. being a big amount uh, very early in our education on what numbers are. When it comes to the actual height of American chestnuts, it's probably very similar to other closely related trees that have a similar ecological niche in terms of being relatively shade tolerant and growing in similar environments. I would probably look to American beech as a good proxy for that because in the canopy stage, they are shade tolerant and apparently so are American chestnuts and they tend to grow in similar kinds of associations in climax forests. American beech kind of gets up to maybe 150 feet tall at its tallest. And you know, maybe American chestnut got a bit taller than that. It does grow faster in its rapid growth phase, but it probably wasn't uh, taller or at least much taller than say the tallest of the oak species, which also have some similarities biologically. And the very tallest of those get to almost, or maybe just slightly over 160 feet tall you know, in rich cove forests down in the southern Appalachians. I think currently uh, cherry bark oak, which is a variety of southern red oak, is the tallest we know of. So they were very tall, but they were not the tallest trees of our forests. You know, we have trees that have, as an evolutionary strategy, sticking up above the canopy of the rest of the trees and then colonizing gaps that happen when trees fall. And in the east, those kind of two main species are white pine and tulip tree, both of which can grow over 200 feet tall. Yeah. In addition to that, they probably weren't the largest in terms of total mass, even though they had some of the widest uh, basal diameters. Because when you look at those pictures of big old chestnuts, as well as descriptions of them, and even the, the standing snags that you can find in some places, they taper a lot. Their lower trunks are very conical, uh, whereas some other species like uh, tulip tree again and eastern hemlock very notably, when they are in an old growth uh, state, they have very cylindrical trunks. They just go straight up without tapering for a very long ways. And that results in them being, you know, extremely massive when you kind of do the math on all that. So American chestnut absolutely was the redwood of the east in terms of the very many uses of its rot resistant, light, easy to work wood. We used a lot of uh, redwood to replace the uses that we originally used American chestnut for after the chestnuts mainly succumbed to the blight, like railroad ties and things like that. But that is not to say it was the redwood of the east in terms of being the towering tallest, biggest tree right. of the forest. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important distinction to make. I did come across uh, one description that described it as like a, a jack-of-all-trades that it wasn't mm -hmm. the biggest the tallest the widest and that it wasn't even the best wood it was very rot resistant but in terms of quality they said the account that I read said that it would often be used almost like a base wood and then they put another veneer on top of it because it wasn't as attractive as say cherry or mm -hmm. oak or uh, other woods that might have been more <laughs> sought after I mean and it I'm sounds sure like it was pretty abundant too yeah so yeah right yeah. Whatever's scarce always has a little more cachet. <laughs> All right, well, I know looking at our time, one thing that, that I wanted to be sure we talk about was restoration efforts to try to bring the chestnut back. Um, but before we get into that, was there anything else that, that you wanted to cover before we move on? Uh, sure, one last thing that came up while I was preparing for this episode is this idea that the American chestnut, as the claim is often made, was sort of dominant in our Eastern forests for the last 12,000 years. 
or sometimes even longer than that, they'll you know reference the full evolutionary history of the chestnut, which goes back uh, about four million years is what I was seeing. Um, it seemed like it originated somewhere around where the Wichita Mountains in Oklahoma are now, and hmm. then gradually moved eastward over the course of the advance and retreat of several ice ages. But the idea that it was dominant in the eastern forests for the last 12,000 years since the last ice age uh, turns out to be a little bit inaccurate. Um, <laughs> it's important to understand that after the glaciers retreated and the bulk of North America became more temperate, different trees migrated back north at different rates. Most of the wind-pollinated trees uh, seem to have migrated much faster than American chestnut did. It really isn't until about 2,000 years ago that we have good evidence of American chestnut having made it all the way up to, say, New England. She's a Johnny-come-lately. <laughs> Indeed, that does seem to be a good uh, description. There are apparently some, uh, some minor pieces of evidence that there may have been small amounts of American chestnut up there by more like 4,000 years ago, but it's really not clear or conclusive at this point. A genetic study that was done indicated pretty clearly that the glacial refugia for American chestnut, which is to say the habitat where it's sort of, uh, its range shrank to and it waited out that ice age, was somewhere around the mouth of the Mississippi River. And it seems that American chestnut, some of the maples, that was kind of their main refugia, whereas some other species had refugia that were more on the Atlantic coast. And since the time that the glaciers retreated, um, they pretty straightforwardly migrated north through the Appalachians. And this was shown by basically increasing genetic diversity the further south you went in the range. Um, the further north you got, the less genetic diversity there was because you just had fewer, you know, different founders advancing that population. The interesting thing is that the population in southern Ontario, which is sort of the northernmost extent of the range, at least uh, towards the west, had a lot more genetic diversity. And that was suggestive to the authors of uh, something that there are multiple other lines of evidence for, which are that this tree, which is so useful to people, you know, not just the settlers, but prior to that and continuing to this day, different Native American cultures, was moved around by people. So. It may be that it moved very slowly on its own, but then was kind of moved north uh, <laughs> with the help of humans. Um, that there, makes perfect sense. Yeah, there was some interesting speculation on why they didn't spread north so quickly, because the climate was fine for them, uh, but it seemed maybe the soils and some other conditions weren't good for a longer period of time for them. Hmm. Yeah, in the research that, that I did, I came across lots of records of remnant populations in Wisconsin and Minnesota that were obviously brought there by settlers who said, hey, we're going to bring the chestnut with us. Mm -hmm. And some of those are, are being used right now at restoration efforts. Yeah. All right. Very cool. Well, why don't we head up the hill a little ways to another area where there are a bunch more chestnuts that are sort of at a different stage in the cycle of uh, dying back and re-sprouting. All right. So as we walked, the, the last thing that I wanted to cover was restoration efforts into trying to bring the chestnut back. And there's basically three main avenues for this. One is hybridization, the other is something called hypovirulence, and then the other is dun, 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 genetic modification. I was going to say that genetic modification is the best one by far. <laughs> but, yeah. 
So we will be getting into to all three of those. So I, I mentioned before that around the 40s or the 50s, you know, people had tried different things to bring the chestnut back. Nothing seemed to be working. Uh, nothing seemed to be able to knock the blight, that fungus, back. But in the 1980s, there's a, a corn researcher by the name of Charles Burnham. And he'd been using different breeding techniques to develop different varieties of corn. And it dawned on him that, hey, trees are plants, right? So, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> I know, right? And that's where that fact comes from. <laughs> that's the fact of the podcast. Right there. <laughs> Just like people have done with dogs with developing different breeds, mm -hmm. couldn't we take the Chinese chestnut, which seems to be the most highly resistant, and breed it with the American chestnut to make a disease resistant American chestnut? So think of those Punnett squares you did in high school. Right. <laughs> right. You're trying to find a hybrid that's 99% American chestnut and then has 1% of the Chinese chestnut that has that resistance into it. Wow, it almost sounds like genetic modification would be way easier and more effective than uh, this hybridization thing. There wasn't a lot of that going on. <laughs> yeah. So the, the guy I was talking about, Charles Burnham, I guess he was one of the guys that started the American Chestnut Foundation. And for anyone interested in finding out more about American chestnuts, obviously the book that Eric talked about, but I think then a logical next step would be to look in the, into the American Chestnut Foundation. They started back crossbreeding in 1983. Now, I'm no expert on hybridization, so if, you, <laughs> if I'm getting something wrong here, you guys tell me what I have wrong, all right? Mm -hmm. The idea is they're gonna take two trees and breed them to try to get hybrid nuts. Then they're gonna plant all the nuts and wait for the trees to grow and they want to get a hybrid that has three things. Number one, they want the resistance from the Chinese chestnut. Number two, they want the good nut production from the American chestnut. And then three, they want the growth of the American chestnut. And if they can find any hybrids that have that, they're going to back cross, back cross those again with American chestnut and keep repeating the process. Right. So this takes a long time because you have to wait until the trees Right. I was going to say, if they were doing this experiment with like Arabidopsis, you know, like a, a commonly used mustard, you know, it's a, what they call a, oh, what's that type of species? That, species? Yeah, it's what they call a model species. And uh, it's because it, you can get through its whole life cycle really quickly. So you don't have to wait all these years Not to, so to do this American type of experiment. Chestnut. Yeah. So since they started this in the 80s, they're now at the fourth generation. They have that's nothing. I know. <laughs> they have a tree that's 15 sixteenths American chestnut. Wow. And the the one researcher on Matt's podcast, she talked about how they had a stand of hybrids mm -hmm. um, that was into nut production years, and then cicadas emerged, and like knocked back a whole bunch. <laughs> oh no. And they're like, no. Right. Because folks that don't know the emerging cicadas, they plant their eggs into the developing branches of trees. Mm -hmm. um, when they started this, they thought that blight resistance was a simple trait, <laughs> that only two or three genes were involved in controlling it, and that back crossing would work. But since then, they found out that blight resistance, it controlled by many more genes. And my research said that above three genes, back crossing isn't really effective, that you need exponentially large populations to try to work with all those genes. So back crossing wasn't going to be, as the longer they did it, they realized it's not going to be the magic bullet. But they're going to use it in conjunction with other strategies. Now, Eric, did you want to keep going? Yeah. All right. Absolutely so can. I can talk as we walk. Sure. 
So hypovirulence, have you guys heard about this? This is the next tool. In the 1970s, work started in Europe using the European chestnut with a biological control method called hypervirulence. Because there in Europe, their European chestnut kind of met the same fate as the American chestnut with the fungus coming through. Now, hypervirulence refers to a virus that infects the fungus. So you might want to make sure you're really clarifying that pronunciation. The hypo versus hyper? Yes, because I had to look that up several times. <laughs> so it's hypovirulence. Hypo. So this is a relatively new strategy of biological control. That virus that's in the fungus, it reduces its ability to cause disease. Now when the fungus affects a chestnut tree, when it goes into creating spores, it'll create like an orange canker on the tree. If the fungus has the virus, then the canker is more whitish. Okay. And it doesn't spread as rapidly as the fungus that doesn't have the virus. Now, in Europe, they took isolates of the pathogen that contained the fungal viruses, and those naturally spread throughout populations once they were introduced. <laughs> I just walked right through a bunch of multiple rows. Because I'm looking at my notes, I'm not looking at where it was. <laughs> Look, I still have some right on me here. Wow. And it did reduce the ability of the fungus to cause disease. And this allowed European chestnuts to naturally regenerate in a lot of regions. And there's now extensive stands of that species once again. <laughs> but it hasn't been as effective in North America as it has in Europe. Our American chestnuts, they don't seem to have some natural resistance as maybe the European chestnuts did. So, here, the researchers are looking at genes in the fungus and the virus, and they're trying to find mating types that match. So they'll find trees that have the existing fungus, and then they'll inoculate those with fungus that has the virus, basically hoping that they'll breed. And then you'd start having the fungus with the virus present in the system. So, the researcher that was on Matt's podcast, she talked about going to one of those populations of chestnuts out in Wisconsin. And they would take the fungus with the virus and they put it on the cankers. And she would say in some cases, trees would create a callus over the canker. They would be able to do hmm. that because the fungus wasn't as virulent. Interesting. It wasn't spreading as rapidly. And just within the past few years, one researcher found a super donor. And what that refers to is they found a fungal colony with the virus, and it seems to always be able to transfer the virus, <laughs> um, no matter what fungal colony you introduce it to. That's interesting, because that book that I mentioned talked about the difficulties they had with uh, getting it to spread. Right. So this, the super donor is a very recent find. Mm -hmm. And she said the next time they go out to that forest in Wisconsin, they may bring the super donor. That's cool. <laughs> They've been doing this for 25 years. She said in that forest, you actually have to watch where you sit down because there's so many burrs on the forest floor. <laughs> wow. Um, so they're hoping that this is going to spread the virus faster. So that's the second arm of 
the effort to try and restore the chestnut. And then the last one, the genetically modified organism. Mm -hmm. Oh, should we play some scary music after that? <laughs> Could you add some like reverb to my... <laughs> <laughs> the genetically modified organism. So in the late 80s, the, the American Chestnut Foundation, they went to actually a, a school here in New York, the College of Environmental Science and Forestry, the ESF, based in Syracuse. And they said, hey, we're doing backcrossing. You guys do genetic engineering. How about trying genetic engineering with the American chestnut? And that's been going on since 1989. So they've been doing it for about 30 years. And what they've done, and again, this is definitely not my area of expertise. I feel like, Steve, you would know more here. Had I done some research. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. If what I'm saying is, is way off, yeah, I'll let tell you know. me. So they use an agrobacterium, something that's already in the environment that can transfer genes from one organism to another. Mm -hmm. So sometimes this bacteria they're using, sometimes it causes burls to form on trees. It's just, it's in the environment and it can cause irregular growth. So they use this bacterium to insert a wheat gene. And that, the wheat gene codes for an enzyme. So Eric, do you know about this? All right, so well, you... kind of a callback to how I mentioned it kills the tree in the right. first place. So how does it? It does it by using a chemical called oxalic acid to break down the cambium tissue of the tree. So what the enzyme that this wheat gene creates, the enzyme is oxalate oxidase. Okay. And it changes oxalic acid into hydrogen peroxide. Wow. So it reduces the virulence of the fungus. It doesn't stop the fungus. The fungus is still there. It's still producing the acid, but now the tree can neutralize the acid. All right, so- That's how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> so, so far I haven't made any horrible, like all this makes sense to you so far. I mean, I, I would, obviously I would have to read the paper right. and all that, but so far nothing sounds too crazy to me that all I would right. have to correct you. So I do feel though that we have to address that many people, they hear those terms genetic modification, genetic engineering, and they get nervous, right? Mm-hmm. So, you, hold on. Do you mind if I just say right now that hybridization is genetic modification? It's just very imprecise genetic modification. <laughs> so, <Sure. laughs> Right. But, but it usually has to be done between closely related species where GMOs can be very distantly related species. Like you have something that's a monocot and you're taking a gene from one of them and you're putting it into a dicot. Right. So, so you know, they're taking this, this gene from wheat. They're not taking it from a frog or from a bird or something right. like so that. Right, so it's still in the yeah same, same so general group. You would call this horizontal gene transfer, right? Right. And that does happen naturally. It does, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Especially when we're talking about viruses. Right. <laughs> I thought it was funny that there doesn't seem, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there doesn't seem to be as much resistance to use of GMOs in native species restoration as there is in food. Right. Yeah. Now, some of that may stem from the fact that uh, GMO foods, they're often tied to corporations. Right. And usually there's not too many corporations involved in species restoration. Not a whole lot of money in it. Right? <laughs> uh-huh. Although you think with the chestnut that uh, with the timber value. Well, right. So some of the pushback and controversy does come from that, from sort of the idea that this is sort of a PR Trojan horse for you know, highly modified trees that will be grown in monoculture for timber. Which uh, if you look at the way that we rotate, say, 
improved loblolly and slash pine in the southeast, that's not an unreasonable concern. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and I, I think that much of the trepidation and fear and outright hatred of GMOs does come from the business aspect of GMOs. Yeah, although I will say some people do combine the science with the business where where some people will say, oh, well, you know, the science, they're just doing it for, you know, they get an NSF grant, they're, you know, they're, they're doing it for the science of it and it'll have an impact. But then, but then they're like, but when businesses get their hands on it, <laughs> that's when things go bad. But then you have people that just combine the two together. Not only are the scientists evil, but... So are the corporations. So. Scientists aren't immune from uh, being evil, right? Uh-huh. So both you and, and the audience might be interested. There was a paper that came out last year, and this was the title, Medical Biotechnology as a Paradigm for Forest Restoration and the Introduction of the Transgenic Chestnut. And this paper looked at, like, why are these technologies so accepted in the medical community but there's such resistance to using them in our food crops. Oh, do you think they're trying to use transgenic now instead of GMO? Maybe. Because, I mean, tra transgene is just that exactly what Bill said earlier, horizontal gene transfer, so. I think, well, I don't know. Transgenic still sounds scary to- like, I, I guess so. Try to think with an untrained ear. <laughs> right. right? Um, but you know, the human genome has, has foreign uh, DNA sequences in it, you know, plenty of uh, species do, so. What? The paper does a kind of a good job of breaking down the problem. And in the end, they really just talk about that, you know, these species extinctions or even species, whatever you want to call it, diebacks like the American chestnuts, they're not happening, happening naturally. Right. These are happening because of humans. And it's highly unlikely that we'll be able to use a naturally occurring solution. And the potential to save untold species from extinction because of this technology, it just, it really makes the research imperative. And caution and lots of research is the key. So the work that they're doing at ESF with this wheat gene, they've developed a tree they're calling Darling 58. <laughs> Even that sounds a little yeah, bit. <laughs> after a local Western New Yorker. Oh, really? Darling? Yes, Herbert Darling. Mm -hmm. Wow. whom the uh, experimental plantation at Zor Valley is. Cool. I'm glad that came up because I was thinking about it when we were talking about the hybrids before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just to give people an idea of the research that goes into this, over the past 30 years, they have done intensive research into this tree and its impact on the environment. The first trees were planted outside in 2005 in Syracuse. In studies since then, they've included things like looking at will tadpoles eat transgenic pollen from these trees and have any ill effects? Will bees using pollen from this tree have any ill effects? Uh, do myco, mycorrhizal fungi, do they interact with the root tips as they do with non-transgenic? Right, and I think one of the important things out of this is that these aren't things the public is necessarily concerned about. These are only questions that other scientists usually can think of. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? I would actually disagree. I, do, I actually, I do disagree a little bit because there are people that have a lot of knowledge about this stuff or they or they read articles and stuff but about some people in the public well no i think it's like as a modality of why people are concerned about transgenics uh you have a lot of concern about things like say bt corn right because mm -hmm. of the fact that you know pesticides have impacts and you have a tree not a tree but a crop that is in a sense producing its own pesticide Mm -hmm. So then what impacts does that have on, you know, the ecology it interacts with? 
And I think that, you know, the tests that you're describing, you know, hopefully help allay that fear, but sort of on the basic premise, I think it's important to point out the difference between this uh, transgenic chestnut that doesn't produce a poison to kill the fungus. It just, you know, it's like it can detoxify that substance that the fungus produces within its own tissues. It's not producing a poison that kills something. <laughs> like some transgenic crops might. Right. So all these tests that they're doing have shown no ill effects. And in some cases, they've even shown beneficial effects, like it performs a little better in some cases than non-transgenic American chestnut. Um, there was another argument that I came across where someone said, well, if we release this tree into the landscape, since it has a different gene in it, is that gonna affect the growth? What if it turns into its own invasive species, a weedy species? But again, subsequent research, it revealed there's no evidence of that. They're like, yeah, but if I start eating chestnuts again, will oxalic acid in my body start getting broken down and I'm gonna die because of it? Uh, well, your liver might be happier. <laughs> I, was, I was gonna say, um, <laughs> I threw that part, of, that last part in in jest, but, but I, I also imagine that that's something they also are very interested in. Oh, definitely. That it's not expressed in the fruit necessarily, but, or. I don't know, is something that is problematic for humans to ingest? I don't know. You know, there's a lot of people that do straight up eat her, uh, hydrogen peroxide as a supplement. <laughs> we, so, we used to sell it at a place I used to work. <laughs> so, so maybe they'll be really excited about this. Part that I found exciting was, this isn't just something that we're just reading about in research papers. In 2020, ESF, put in a petition to the D, uh, USDA for the deregulation of Darling 58. Hmm. That is step one, getting the USDA to say this can be used without restrictions in the landscape. So was, there was a 60 day public comment period last October, October 2020. They received a lot of positive comments, some negative. And right now, folks right now, it is August 2021. The USDA is developing an environmental impact statement, trying to look at what the impacts might be to releasing this on the landscape. And then once that's released, there'll be another comment period. And I'll put links to a lot of this information in the episode notes. Right, and, and I do want to just back up slightly, and uh, we were goofing around a little bit back there, but when I was saying things like, these are things the public isn't asking, the public's concerned, right? But the scientists are the ones with the tools who are checking for all these things that they might not even think about. They know they want the scientists to check for things, you know, sure. but I don't know. And there's so much going into this research about the effects that this could have. And a lot of it's just things that I'm sure Bill and I wouldn't even think about or know to think about even. I know that we wouldn't think about a lot of these things, right? <laughs> yeah. Like I hadn't even thought tadpoles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why are they looking how the pollen affects tadpoles? But it makes sense when you stop and think about it. Yeah. There is one other point of controversy that came up while I was doing research that is probably worth a mention. Okay. Uh, which is that we have to bear in mind that if this is approved for release, uh, and I'll, I'll preface that I'm a supporter of this technology, and I would like to see it used to restore American chestnut to our landscape, but we have to bear in mind that within the geographic range where that would occur, there are a number of sovereign nations within our nation uh, that 
have pointed out that they have not really been included in the process of, uh, you know, discussing this. Mm -hmm. um, so I did find uh, some literature on the sort of needs to potentially move forward with being more inclusive of, you know, tribal nations in the process of whether or not this is approved and used to restore the American chestnut to the landscape. Um, which, you know, we're at a moment where we can start talking about these things in ways we didn't before and move forward them. We and should be talking about them in ways we didn't. Yeah, and move forward on them in ways that we didn't before to try to rebuild, uh, you know, more functional relationships between, say, research institutions that are doing good science, even if in the past and to some degree still in the present, there are problematic aspects of that and the rest of the cultures that are tied to this landscape. Good no, that's point. a good point. I mean, we live in a country and all that, and so there's a lot of responsibilities we have to the people. So I think, well, and our country contains right, other co yeah. countries. And precisely. I think it's important to say right now, too, though, that this is still in such an early phase that when it comes to releasing it into the landscape, that is still very preliminary. Mm -hmm. Like one of the, the researchers on Matt's podcast, listen to this. She said she sat down and thought about, like, what would it take to get this back out into its native range? She says, you got to think of this on a scale necessary for them to become part of the ecology in our eastern landscape. The native range was 100 million, 180 million acres. Well, what does it take to plant that, right? If you look at just 1% of that range, at the current nursery stock rate, they can produce about 100,000 trees a year. It would take 2,300 years <laughs> to replant that. So. We're still in the very, very early stage. I think there's still lots of time. Mm -hmm. And I hope that I hope so. those kind of considerations, those cultural considerations will be made. Mm -hmm. But production's gonna have to increase. And there's also the aspect of once you get so many out into the landscape, hopefully natural processes will take over and they will start to spread themselves. But we might expect based on what we know about the post-glacial migration of the species that that could actually be pretty slow. It based could be. on the fact that they took so long to start spreading north and then probably were reliant to some degree on uh, you know human movement to get as far north as they did in the time span that they did right but i think always important to consider it's going to take a lot of people and oh, boots yeah. on the ground and organizations right it's going to be a long time now before we move on i thought this would be a good spot to share this last little bit because this is my favorite part of, of what i discovered <laughs> So the American Chestnut Foundation, in 2014, they came up with what I thought was a beautiful acronym of combining these three efforts, genetic modification, the hypovirulence, and then the breeding. They call the program 3BUR, so the number three, B-U-R. You said how many nuts are in a burr? Three. Right? Hmm. So the three Bs, three B is breeding, biotechnology, and biocontrol. So the biotechnology is the gene transfer and then biocontrol is the hypovirulence. So it's breeding, biotechnology, and biocontrol united for restoration. Three burr. Oh, B-U-R. There you go. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? Nice. <laughs> That's some good marketing there. Yeah. Three but, burr. But looking beyond that, it explains why you need this three-pronged approach. So if we want this tree to hopefully function the way the American chestnut did historically, you need that that American chestnut character, the ability to fill the niche, being able to grow tall, 
to have that rapid growth phase to produce a lot of nuts. But you also need the resistance to the fungus, as well as other diseases, because obviously there's other diseases out there. Right, which is which is why they want, I'm sure, so much of it to be American chestnut right. in the final product. So. And along with that, you also need diversity in the species. Because remember, right. this transgenic one they're producing, it's a clone. So in and of itself, it does not have a lot of genetic diversity. I, I will say one of the nice things about hybrids is typically they do have like just within a single individual there's a lot of diversity there when you're back crossing well even just an uh, initial hybrid okay yeah and even sometimes they'll even do that in crop species where they'll have one crop species sort of become very inbred and another one become very inbred and then when you can actually cross those two inbred populations they actually become a, a pretty healthy individual right so and that's what i'm getting at so mm. look at that you're thinking <laughs> no I, so. I it's not about thinking it's about <laughs> having to learn this stuff <laughs> so back crossing didn't really give as much of the american character as we wanted it didn't give as much resistance to the fungus as we wanted but back crossing gave us big diversity it gave us a medium amount of resistance but there's about 500 american chestnut genetic backgrounds hmm. in the hybrid tree that they have now then with the genetic engineered one that darling 58 it is a clone, so you get the American chestnut character, you get the resistance, but not the genetic diversity. <laughs> and why do we need genetic diversity? I mean, it helps you in terms of evolving to right. uh, be able to adapt to your environment. So traditional breeding techniques are necessary for getting the genetically engineered product out into the landscape and diversifying it. You can diversify it onto American chestnut, onto back-crossed individuals, and you're adding diversity from those populations. I just want to say one thing. Yeah. The way I talked about d genetic diversity was a little bit confusing because it's not about you surviving. It's, it's about, about your species the, surviving. Let, let's, well, let's even have it less than that, the population surviving. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Absolutely. Because we think about evolution in terms of populations, not individuals. Yeah, nature so. doesn't care about the individual. Right. right. <laughs> and, it, and it's usually <laughs> not the current group of individuals. It's usually the offspring. Because, yeah. you know, evolution is always one step behind. So. And then hypovirulence, it's going to further the ability of these new populations to survive long term the hypovirulence. So they're all three going to be working together. So I just thought that was a beautiful way to kind of wrap up that discussion of trying to restore the American chestnut. And both of the researchers that were on Matt's podcast, as well as a lot of the other literature I read, surprisingly, for topics we usually cover, it was surprisingly optimistic hmm. in terms of, hey, within 50 years, it is very likely that we will be seeing American chestnuts resistant wow. to the fungus out on the landscape i mean because normally when we're talking about stuff it's not good news no i mean <laughs> yeah it's sort of strange having good news yeah and then just the last thing that i want to share is you know we're talking about restoring the american chestnut but when the american chestnut disappeared to my understanding oak hickory pretty much took over in the appalachian forests and all of those ecological processes happening in those habitats have now stabilized what's going to happen if we then try to say all right no, no no we're gonna take what's here and change it back that's just something i think to think about yeah and you know that is actually something i came across in one of the things i was reading was that when american chestnut was introduced into forests in the midwest outside of their natural range by settlers moving in and things like that and those were mainly oak forests sometimes oak hickory 
it was very aggressive in those forests and basically took over the forest canopy <laughs> and excluded a lot of those species that had been in there before chestnut was introduced to those. So there may certainly be potential for some ecological disruption by reintroduction of American chestnut. Mm. It's always a gray area, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we like to be able to, you know, draw clear clear lines between like, oh, native species, good, yeah. non-native invasive species, bad. Yeah. But, you know, oftentimes you'll hear from any ecologist or biologist of any kind, uh, all your questions, the answer is really, it depends. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's rare to get a yes or a no. And I think it is confusing having such lo like short lifespans that we have, right. is that we're always just looking at a snapshot at any one given time, you know, and we could, you, you can you can do soil cores and stuff to see what was there before, you know, looking at like pollen, sediment and things like that. But typically when we see something, you know, right. <laughs> we're like, this is what I want to preserve. You know? Well, because you or, can say like yeah. the American chestnut has been removed from the landscape for about a hundred years. That's a blink of an eye in, in right. geologic time. And then even the settlers, when they came, American chestnut has been here forever. Well, no, it's been 2000 years, <laughs> right. which yeah. Yeah, to humans is a long time, but yeah, well, in geologic time is a blink of an eye. When we're thinking about that in terms of restoration, um, the, the issue is that now the stakes are higher when we're talking about ecological impacts because the landscape that we're introducing it to is so fragmented Right. Um, and, you know, has lost so much habitat. So it's one thing if in an area, chestnut for a period after it's first introduced crowds everything else out and then ecosystem processes move on and things re-diversify a bit because those other species had other habitat to move into. But today, <laughs> they might not have anywhere to move into. And um, I guess that's a, a, to return to the pitch for this Western New York Wildway project, um, these are the kind of considerations that we're concerned about and motivate us to try to engage in larger scale landscape conservation and connectivity. That was a beautiful bring back. <laughs> that was in my head and you beat me to it. That was lovely. So we just need anywhere American chestnut is going to be. We need a land trust to be involved in some kind of wild way project, right? Sure. I mean, I don't know why we should have anywhere where we don't have a land trust involved in the Wildway project. That's right. <laughs> just uh, try to hook it up everywhere. Well, I think that's a, a good place to stop. So, Eric, could you remind everybody where to go if they want to find out more information about the Land Conservancy and your projects? Yeah, thanks, Phil. So, again, this is the Allegheny Wildlands Project, which we have until the end of the year to raise about $870,000 to complete the purchase and conserve in perpetuity, at which point you will be able to come hike on trails here, see the chestnuts, see the other trees, and a lot of wildlife. It is a very diverse site. So if you want to find out more about that, maybe donate or send some information to someone you know who might be able to, uh, you can find that at WNYLC. Org. That is the website of my organization, the Western New York Land Conservancy. So again, that is WNYLC.org. And while you're there, you can also learn about the larger Western New York Wild Way project, which the Allegheny Wildlands Project is a part of, which we will be continuing to pursue until we meet our goals, which <laughs> until is probably in perpetuity. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> there is always work. There will always be work that needs to be done. You'll always we have are a job. committed to doing it. <laughs> well, Eric, we can't thank you enough for giving up your afternoon, your morning and your afternoon to be here with us. And just the Western New York Land Conservancy 
they just do such wonderful work. So thank you for doing your work, being part of that great organization, and sharing it with us and our audience. So thank you. Well, thank you guys so much for all the great work you do in science communication and for sharing this with everybody. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> all right, so folks, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, first and foremost, we want to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. Over the past couple of months, we've had four new patrons join us. Mary B.R., Max D., Robert P., and Quixote. Quixote. <laughs> Quixote. Huh. <laughs> so, folks, we want to thank you so much for supporting the podcast. It's going to allow us to do more exciting things in the future. And Steve and I were just talking about a possible trip to Illinois. We'll yeah. see if I can uh, get Steve to hit the road. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> just stay tuned for that. And we like to thank each and every patron, but we also like to take a moment each episode and list our top patrons. Like we did last episode, I'm going to have Violet do that at the very, very end of the episode. So please stick around for that. Our unpaid intern. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> and folks, if you can't afford to be a patron or support the podcast through PayPal, we encourage everyone to share the podcast with friends and you can review us on iTunes. We want to thank our newest iTunes reviewer, CCD. That was our only hmm. new review over CCD. the past CCD. <laughs> CCD. Isn't that a program, like a high school program? It's also a type of image sensor you find in digital cameras. Oh. <laughs> I knew it as... Charge-coupled device. <laughs> I knew it as religious education. I don't know. Oh, CCD, it. that's CCD. what it is. CCD. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't want to have to go to CCD. No, I guess not. I went to, I, I went to Catholic school, so I didn't Just have kidding. to go. So. <laughs> All right. So... Steve, one thing that we forgot to do halfway through the episode, this is probably going to be a two-parter, folks. Because <laughs> <laughs> as I'm looking at our mic, we've recorded right now three hours and three minutes of material. Wow. <laughs> I think that's a record. Three-parter. <laughs> <laughs> but we do want to thank our sponsor, Gum Leaf USA. They've been kind enough to provide Steve and I with high-quality rubber boots. And we have taken those boots on lots of adventures. And we encourage everybody to check out gumleafusa.com. And Gumleaf wants to support the podcast, and they go the extra mile by providing patrons of the podcast with free shipping. When you become a patron, you can find the offer code on our Patreon website. Mm -hmm. And folks, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hey, Bill, should they go outside? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we want to encourage all those parents out there. Please get your kids outside. Let them get muddy. Let them get dirty. Let them flip over rocks and logs. And anybody out there that doesn't have kids, hey, you get yourselves outside too. You deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right, folks. We'll see you next time. Yep. See you next time. And here is Violet to read our top patrons for this month. Take it away, Violet. Eric, Alyssa, the He Ranks, Todd, Callie, Sean C., Rich, Jessica, Rochelle, the Drunk Phytologist, Orange Julianne, Dan, Diane, Ken, Jake, Melissa in Dusty, Arizona, Celia, Kelly, Sarah, Andy, Helen, MD, Judy, Ben, Andrew, Lauren, Jane, Doodle Dude 82, Gail and Mac, Hazies, Jeff, Goose Egg, Esther, John W., Bethany, we named the dog Indy, Rob, Jonathan A., Hannah, Sean. All right. Thank you, everyone. Steve and I appreciate your support. And we'll see you next month. Nice job, Violet. Thank you. <laughs>